Hey everybody, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Mike Erie, with my co-host, Tim Stafford. We are delighted to be with you. Uh, we, are t- we have been told repeatedly we have great voices for podcasting and great faces for podcasting. And so we're, we're just happy to do that. Um, thank you. Uh, as always, we got so much feedback um, from LGBTQ episode and the exile episode, and it's just amazing. Uh, and it's so fun to be a part of this community. I want to thank some folks that joined our Patreon team. I want to thank um, Courtney, and I want to thank Renee, and I want to thank um, Nathan. I want to thank uh, Daniel. I want to thank Tyler. I want to thank um, Rick and JT. What a crew. My goodness, thank you so much. We are blessed beyond belief. Um, and it's not, it's not just that it helps all of the expenses associated with this, but that um, you see value in it. Because we see, we think, we think it's important what we're all doing. Um, and it's great to see that other people see that too. So thank you again for that. Today, we're just going to kind of cook straight into the interview. Um, we're interviewing a, a guy that we've had on before years ago. Uh, Dan Koch is his name, and he had a podcast named Depolarize. The, actually, we have an old episode um, in the archives that uh, you can <laughs> listen to way back in the day with sweet Andy Laura. Um, and, uh, and, and Dan's been doing some research on the subject of spiritual abuse, and particularly the kind of environments where this sort of abuse um, is most conducive, the, the kind of environments that make this conducive. And so we wanted to have a conversation about, um, and, and, and it's tough. And he does such a great job, Tim, nuancing. Because, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, abuse, that, that's, a very, that's a very strong term. And um, it can be over-applied and under-applied, depending. Totally. And so we get into, um, I think, some stuff that, I, that loads of us are aware of and familiar with, but he, he kind of codifies it in a way that's helpful. And then there are three questions at the end of the interview um, that he brings up that I think are really, really good. And yeah. so, Tim, what did you think? I thought it was great. I'm so curious. It's easy to point at finite, like, this is abuse, this is abuse, um, this person should not be in that position, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like the whole, when the organism itself has developed itself to a point where it has abusive tenets as part of the foundation of it, right? that's such an interesting thing to tackle because that's, that's more than just rebuke or right. like right. calling something out. It's like, how do you change an entire system that yes. has decades or longer of uh, foundational elements that have led to people being abused? So like we're, we're definitely wrestling with that, you know, with a lot of the do better stuff in young life. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, but there's a lot of conversations about how, and then he does a really good job too. That I think it's interesting with the, because we've had lots of conversations about calling and vocation on here. What does it mean to be called and how you use God's name to say, God told me this, God told me that. Uh, and then in the instance of abuse where it's like that's being used and God is being, God's the ammunition or God's like the energy source yeah. to fund your abusive tactics. 
That's right. a wild, that's a, that's a really wild thing to think about spiritually. Yeah. Like trying to imagine that from God's perspective or something where it's like, cause you think about those verses of just like causing someone to stumble and how Jesus spoke to yeah. that. Totally. But like causing someone to stumble versus like causing someone to have existential dread. Yeah. In the name of God. Like if Jesus was like, Hey, you cause little ones to stumble. I can't imagine what God's opinion is of you've caught, you've caused existential dread in somebody about, I don't know. It's just, it's so big. And yeah. So I'm so fascinated as we continue to have conversations here in Auburn and on the podcast about like what church should be and how do we start like, you know, uh, yeah, I, if you can change that whole thing or if, or if we just, I don't, there's just so much, there's just so many ornaments attached to the tree. Yeah. <laughs> Good metaphor. And, and, um, if you want to exercise in sadness, take his seven <laughs> characteristics and just hold them up against the Sermon on the Mount and you'll mm. see how far, um, we fall in from what it is that Jesus called us to embody as a community. And so, but like us, Dan is super hopeful uh, for the church. And he says some really profound things to people who are considering sort of working vocationally for a church. So anyway, um, we think it's great stuff. We're excited to have him on again. And, uh, and here you go. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, we have the pleasure to welcome our good friend Dan Koch back to the program. Dan, um, if there are some of you who've listened to all 300 plus episodes, you will remember that way back in the day, Dan, uh, we had the pleasure of hosting Dan and uh, we were talking about his podcast, Depolarize, which was very unique uh, in that space and had a great conversation and that's since been one of the more listened to of shows in the uh, back catalog of our podcast. Uh, and so we were stoked to have him back again. So Dan, hello. Thanks for your time today. Good to see you. It's always great on a on a bright, sunny day to hop on a microphone and talk about lives being destroyed through spiritual abuse, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Perfect. And, and unfortunately, the, um, <laughs> we have too many examples and much to discuss. Yeah. Um, let's catch up just a little bit. So you were you were in the depolarized space, mm-hmm. and then you moved on to. Um, I don't, did you move on? Were you still doing depolarized? And then you you did. You have permission. So it it goes uh, depolarized, reconstruct. You have permission in that order, and they all overlapped to some degree. But now it's okay. only you have permission for the last two and a half years. Nice, nice. And and the space that that sort of occupies, how would you describe it? I would describe it as um, it's basically the overlap of a, a more progressive vision of Christianity and various social sciences. So psychology, sociology, uh, anthropology, basically just like trying to take the world seriously, the modern world, while also taking Christianity seriously. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, all of that, that posture in the world has led you to grad school. So tell us just a little bit about, before we get into our topic, kind of what, what led you to that decision and what you're up to. 
Yeah. So I, I assumed for a long time, I, I knew I would always, I always knew I would go to grad school. I sort of have like a brain that wouldn't let me not eventually, you know, it mm-hmm. just wouldn't mm-hmm. shut up. Um, but I thought it would be for theology because that's kind of what I've been interested in for over a decade. And it's, yeah. I, it's what most of my podcast conversations were about, um, when they weren't about politics, a la depolarize, but even on depolarize, a lot of times they were about theology. So I, I knew there was something there, <laughs> but they were also often about psychology. And as I was kind of discerning what to do with my career, um, getting a little, getting a little stir crazy being a. Uh, commercial composer, um, I yeah. someone recommended psychology, and I started thinking about it, and I was like, I think that that's actually a better fit. Mm. And so now I'm I'm halfway through my schooling toward a doctorate in counseling psychology, uh, and I, I finished up basically the first half of my dissertation, which is the research that we'll be talking about today yeah. um, uh, on spiritual abuse, and I plan to see clients with an emphasis on, you know, those who have been spiritually abused or for whom religious change, loss of faith, uh, maybe a partner lost faith, you know, anything, you know, I want to see pastors, anything about that world um, is is what I plan to sort of focus on in my clinical career. Well, too bad you won't have many people to talk to. <laughs> uh, that'll be a very small. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, it's it's yeah. insane. It's Not insane. really. No, it's yeah. So, so the focus of your dissertation is going to be spiritual abuse. Yeah. And um, you've been doing research along that, uh, along those lines. And so I've read a couple of times the 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 doc you sent over. I'd love to just sort of walk it through with you and yeah. anything you want to anything you want to highlight. Uh, please stop and sort of plant on that. Um, one of the one of the questions I wanted to start with is what separates spiritual abuse from just I had a bad experience at a church? Like where where does that where does it cross over? Do you think it's really it's it's unclear at this point, and I I mean that both it's unclear in my own mind, but it's also unclear in the minds of the you know I'm I'm in contact with most of the spiritual abuse researchers who are alive. Uh, there aren't mm. that many of them. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of them is on my dissertation committee. Another one I've interviewed and emailed with recently, you know? So it's like, yeah. there aren't a whole lot of people who know a whole lot about it at like, yeah. at a high level of like rigorous, careful thinking, right? Um, there yeah. are, there's a higher number of people who work with clients Um, that don't, that are not researchers, but they have, they are good with working with people who have experienced religious trauma. Um, and so they would maybe give a different answer and that would actually be interesting on its own. I haven't done that yet. And, and my conversations are mostly at the more academic level. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, it would, you'd probably have fun, like getting someone on at some point who it's just what they do every day is they work with these clients and they would have a very different perspective than me. Um, I'll eventually eventually yeah. also have that I was perspective. Say that will be you. It will be yeah. me, but not for, you know, I won't have the kind of years they would have for another five years or so. Um, yeah. yeah. But basically, you know, in fact, we, we sometimes talk about um, swapping out spiritual abuse or religious abuse for something like religious harm, spiritual harm. It's really more of a continuum. Um, you can have... <sighs> It's complicated in two ways. One one way is that the intensity of the experience can be different. So mm. you could, uh, for instance, let's say 
you're in an abusive marriage. Your husband has hit you twice and has verbally abused you for years. You could talk to a friend at your church that you know and really love, and they could make a comment that they shouldn't make. Uh, Maybe they say something like, well, you know, Jesus said that we should forgive 70 times seven, but at the same time, I recognize uh, what you're going through and, and it's a hard decision. Now, bringing up forgiving 70 times seven in the context of being domestically and verbally abused, uh, you know, maybe not like the best thing to do, but we would we would pretty much say that's not abuse. Like the friend left open the option that, but it's complicated, right? And so, right. and so yeah. whatever. Now contrast that same exact situation. You have a meeting with the pastor and the pastor says, uh, Jesus says we can never divorce except for infidelity. So unless he cheats on you, there, you cannot separate, cannot divorce, you cannot press charges. Uh, there, you know, you just like you need to submit to your husband. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that's abuse uh, in any and in, in every case, right? To to sort of be that rigid in a situation with that much, frankly, you know, crime being committed. Um, right. So that's one complicating. It's just like how intense is it? Then there's another factor yeah. as well, which is that we know this from uh, PTSD studies on combat veterans that multiple uh, service people can experience the exact same event. One gets PTSD, the other doesn't. So there's mm. a um, there's like a trauma resilience that we all have, mm. and you don't really know that you have it until you find out, right? And in fact, one of the yeah, things they're trying yeah. to do in uh, veteran psychology is like actually figure out if they can predict that f- to figure out who to send into the field or not and who to have as a back office you know, job within the military because that would be good information to know. But we don't really know how, we just know that that's true. So that's another mm-hmm. factor of like harm, abuse or nothing, just like a kind of an annoying experience that might be really yeah. abusive or really traumatic for somebody else. So it is kind of complicated and it's really a continuum. Yeah, and, and, and the word abuse itself carries in our culture and rightly a connotation that's, that's fairly heavy and yeah. significant yeah. beyond just, yeah, I don't like church people. Yeah, you don't want to so, throw it around too lightly. Right, 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 right. But there's no doubt it happens. Um, one of the things you've done is to, would you survey 6,000 people? I surveyed, what yeah, it was? Uh, surveyed 4,800 people and thir- like 3,200 <laughs> 3, of them actually completed the survey. And then 1,600 of them did what I have often done, which they look at it and they click to the, the first page and they're like, I don't feel like I have time for this right now. And then they peace <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, thirty two hundred, which is for a uh, for a student, you know, survey is is pretty incredible, and I'm very grateful. Right, and one of the one of the disclaimers I thought was interesting is these are people who may be more aware of spiritual abuse yeah. than the general population, mm-hmm. but the um, the results were still um, fascinating and disturbing. Yeah, I, I wanted to hit. Um, the underlying factors. I wanted that you identify seven um, that that kind of create an environment for this. Mm-hmm. So seven. These are almost seven things to be aware of if you're looking for a healthy church. 
Um, and uh, so I just wanted to talk this through because I think that's a super practical takeaway um, of because I we get asked all the time, what do you look, what what should you look for in a church? And obviously there are the the normal things, but because we're seeing so much carnage in the world, there are these leadership issues and leadership practices that seem to be assuming greater and greater importance. So I wondered if you could just talk us through and then pause wherever you want to and sort of hammer into something uh, that you noticed. Yeah. Well, how about I'll do this? I'll, I'll, do, I'll go through one by one and give you, you know, three, two to four examples and then get you guys to respond. And then we can okay. move to the next one. Yep. Um, Sounds good. For the nerds out there, this was done through a statistical process called factor analysis where you yes. you basically have a, a bunch of um, items and then the computer goes through and figures out which items clump together naturally. So if mm. someone says this happened a lot, what else do they tend to say happens a lot? And the more people you have, mm. the stronger those findings are. And with 3,200 people, it's it's pretty robust statistical work. I'll stop talking about stats now. That was it. No, 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 no. Anytime you're going to use the ro word robust next to statistical, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in completely. I don't know that you can speak for listeners, though. <laughs> that might just be a you and me thing, Mike. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So the first one, uh, and I, I'm la I've labeled these you know, based on what it seems like they are. The first one is authoritarian leadership. So some examples of the type of things that cluster together here are being expected to consult your pastor about non-religious decisions, uh, mm. seeing mm. specific church members being pressured to give money, even though it's it's known that they have financial hardship, um, pastors mm. explicitly claiming to speak on God's behalf, and experiencing extreme pressure to become a pastor, missionary, or other spiritual leader. Right. So there's an elevating of the position. Yeah beyond just the normal everyday, and there's a high degree of control yeah. um, trying to be exercised. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, that's that right. right. It's, it's basically, you know, a, a, lot of the, um, a lot of the authoritarian leadership stuff you could, you could file under narcissism, um, right. but not right. all of it. There's also like, if you notice with that hmm. pressure to become a pastor, missionary, or spiritual leader, there's, there's an economy within this group where you know, pastors and missionaries are truly at the top and yeah. everything else is below um, to where to where it would be expected to consult them about things that aren't related to church, uh, yeah. moving, yeah. who you're going to marry, right. uh, you know, uh, yep. jobs yep. to take. Um, they're also under this is uh, being expected like or giving up vocational goals or educational goals mm. or being mm. being asked to give them up by a pastor or you could even say sort of implicitly being told you should not pursue school you should not pursue a career you're a woman maybe and that that would bleed into some of the gender discrimination stuff which we'll get into later but you know it's yeah it's that it's a it's authoritarian basically yeah. um and that's it's one of the hallmarks yeah yeah um so avoid Loki as a pastor. Yes, yes. Have you been watching the show? <laughs> Anyone who declares oh, glorious yes. purpose. <laughs> yes, yes. I have a new fondness for alligators without spoiling anything. Uh, I'm, I'm a little behind <laughs> on that show. I watched the first two or three. Uh, okay. But, you know, one of the interesting items here that it might be worth just kind of chatting about because it's kind of a 
eye of the beholder thing is my pastor explicitly claiming to speak for God. And, yeah. you know, yeah. there's different ways that pastors can do that. Uh, that's, that's the item. So people filled that out as they understood it. Um, but right. in talking with some people afterwards, it's like, well, a pastor might say, you know, guys, I want to share a word that I have for you this morning that, that came to me in prayer. Right. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, someone good, could interpret it that way, but it'd be something yeah. more like, um, you know, uh, you, if you're out there and you're, and you live with your boyfriend or whatever, like God says you are in sin right now. What's interesting about that is the Bible does not talk about cohabitation. <laughs> God actually doesn't say anything about cohabitation in the modern world in the Bible. So God is not saying anything. You are saying something through the interpretive grid of your denomination or personal Bible study as a fallible person in a four and a half billion year old universe with who knows how many other sentient species that God also loves and deals with. In a world where everyone that you would have agreed with 100 years ago thought it was wrong for black and white people to marry. So, no, God doesn't say that. You say that. And that can really mess with people, right, to say mm -hmm. God says this when it's it's something that is unclear. Now, it, So if, you know, if, if, if we change the example to God says, I hate divorce. Yeah. So back to – so there is something he says. Mm-hmm. How does that affect that dynamic? Because I can hear, I mean, I can hear some pushback in my brain thinking, well, I mean, dude, the text says what the text says. Yeah. And if I'm quoting the text, you can't call that abusive. Yeah, I would, I would say, um, yeah, if you're quoting scripture and you're saying God says in this verse blank and you read it. Right, right. I, I have a lot less trouble with that. Now, there, depending on what that verse is, there are layers of interpretation that you may or may not be using. But if you're literally quoting God saying, I hate divorce, well, right. sure. I think God does hate divorce, right? Like in, in, the, in the basic sense. Now, what's, this is what's so complicated about human language and interaction is the context of a church, right? The right. other context and what kind of messages get put out there. That one phrase, God hates divorce, I could imagine a Episcopal priest quoting that in a context where it's understood that people get divorced sometimes, but there's real fallout. There's fallout to children. There's fallout to there's financial fallout. There's relational fallout. Uh, it is not the kind of thing you would wish on anybody. I, could also yeah. I can also imagine that statement coming out of the mouth of an independent fundamental Baptist preacher who also says all kinds of other crazy stuff all the time that is going well beyond what the text explicitly says. And, and that in, in a culture that implicitly says God hates divorce so much that God's hatred of slavery, of abuse, of physical abuse, of hate, hatred, all those yeah. things God hates less than divorce because we're fundamentalists, right? So, right, right. It, again, it's it's always in context, and that context actually gives us a lot of information of how we interpret what the actual single sentence is that the pastor said. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Real, honestly, um, the best way to describe all these things is actually potentially abusive. That's the more accurate way. So I'm studying spiritual it. abuse, but any of these particular items that I'm talking about, 
these are all potentially abusive. They are not necessarily or always, with a very few exceptions like pressuring someone to stay in an abusive marriage, I would say is always abusive. But most of them are not going to be that cut and dry. They're more potentially abusive. Got it. Got it. All right, let's go to number two. Number two is violence, horror, and punishment. Uh, I'll give a couple examples and then I'll tell my, this one is where my own interaction with this topic comes from autobiographically. So I'll say a little bit about that too. Actually, I'll start with that. So when I was in sixth grade, uh, I was at a, I was at a Christian school that was run by uh, kind of maybe fundamentalists, but very conservative Anglicans. Um, Mm. You don't normally get fundamentalism in Anglicanism, but uh, they, there was some adult at that school. I can't remember if it was a teacher or a parent or a volunteer. They gave me a book that was called 96 reasons why Jesus will return in 1996. And it, and it, nice. And it claimed September as the date. And this was April of 1996. Hold on. Hold on. That's the sequel to 88 reasons. Yep. Jesus was coming back in 88. Yeah. So 88 sold like millions of copies and was a big thing. Then of course it didn't happen. And you got to imagine diminishing returns by the time (laughs) it gets to 1996, (laughs) but it was in print. There was a book. It was like a little paperback, like a cheap little paperback. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, it was, it was, you know, six months out and I was in sixth grade. I was, uh, let's see, I was 12, almost 13. And was this handed to you specifically or was this something they were like, you know, do you remember if it was my unreliable memory from that time is that someone gave it to me specifically, uh, which would make sense why I would have like taken it seriously. But I, I don't know. I could have just seen it lying around. Um, yeah. And I had panic attacks. I was like, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready for my life to be over. I'm 12 years old. Um, I've never been naked with a woman. Uh, even though I didn't really want to be in that way yet, I still was like so curious. Um, and I have, I have now comically specific memories praying to God, like I won't have sex. I know that's wrong, but like, please just let me be in a room naked with a woman before you come back. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, so yes, the, yes. the, yes. this is kind of, we you're not the, the only prayer. one. You're not the only one who prayed that. Prayer. I, oh, I've heard multiple people have told me. So under this, like, Violence, horror, and punishment thing, you know, end times stuff taught to children uh, can be some of that. Also, hell houses, you know, terror or horror oh. being used to motivate religious decisions. Also in this clump is seeing scripture used to justify physical violence of any kind or abusive parent-child behavior. Again, kind of in the eye of the beholder. Some people would consider totally. like any spanking abuse. Um, some people right, wouldn't. Right. Um, yeah. And then just, yeah, like talking about hell, Satan and demons or the end of the world to young children when it's, it's really developmentally inappropriate. Um, that's kind of this violence, horror and punishment factor. And it, and it seems like the issue of like, if the first one is the issue of control, this one's the issue of manipulation. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like the the only way, and I've had I've had tons of conversations with people who literally say, "Well, if you take hell away, why would I follow Jesus?" Right. And, and you're like, "Wow, we framed the whole thing that way." And um, I really resonate, really resonate with this. Absolutely, it's a whole generation, and that and the Left Behind series fed into that. There was an old movie like 
Oh, I don't remember what it was Thief called. in the Night. Thief in the Night. And the, yes, and, Dan. And the uh, A Distant Thunder, the sequel. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, I, I don't know that I saw A Distant you Thunder. You don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched some of those, you know, for, for research, and uh, they're, yes. they're bad. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's so <laughs> different. I mean, both the authoritarian, I mean, Jesus explicitly repudiates this. Oh, yeah in the gospels and this oh my lord the only context he ever talks about um gehenna is to religious leaders um and he never uses it as a, as a motivation for belief ever so that's just so so striking yeah he uses it as a motivation for caring for the poor basically right yeah. right yeah and to deal with injustice yep i did not um, get that from uh shauna my wife and i our first actual date was to one of those hell houses no way. Oh, no. No. Did it work? No. I was actually a youth pastor at the time, and they had come up in conversations with parents. So I was like, let's just go check this out. Like, I'm curious yeah. to see what they're doing. I and mean, it was it was insane. I heard a, oh. I heard a, um, I can't remember where I heard it, but somebody told a story of when, when she was a teenager and their, and their church put these on. And one of the rooms was like a uh, a rave, you know, because raves mm-hmm. were so satanic. She's oh, like, oh no! But the thing is, like, by the end of the night, you know, it would be a weekend that they would do these. So, like, by nine or ten p.m., as it's kind of winding down, all the volunteers would just end up like at dancing in the rave room, <laughs> <laughs> as if it was a normal dance, which totally. I think is like the ultimate. That's like the ultimate yeah. fu to the Hell House. Yeah. Oh, oh my man. goodness. Oh, brutal. Laugh. Yeah. We, yeah, we can spend so much time on that one, but I want to keep us, yeah, let's keep, keep us moving. going to number three. So the third one is discrimination. And um, for my actual scale, there was only enough, it's, it's kind of boring sampling stuff, but I only have uh, gender discrimination in my kind of final product. Robust. Um, yeah. But, but racial and sexual orientation discrimination fall under this as well. And this is, you know, basically being denied opportunities to serve, um, being treated as less than uh, just sort of generally because of one's gender, race or orientation. And then I think with uh, with women in particular, there are some other kind of hues of this because it is so pervasive in a lot of the theology that, you know, the the way in which women are less than um, (laughs) it's a lot more. it's a it's both more explicit and more implicit and more detailed than any kind of like racial discrimination would be, for instance, in the 21st century. Um, and then orientation has its own kind of set of, of issues as well. There's there are ways that that the true uh, beliefs of the church are sort of obscured because it's unpopular to be clear about those. And then you can get in there for six months. You're you're become you start to becoming a member, and all of a sudden you realize right. you can't even play on the praise team. Uh, right. So yeah. there there's there's kind of a whole host of that. And then with women, of course, there's all the where can you use your gifts? Can you use your gifts? Do you have to be right. in the kitchen or teaching children and all that stuff? So would you say people who hold the theological position yeah. of complementarianism? Does that make them discriminatory or is it how they hold that that makes it discriminatory or not? I would say simply having a complementarian view is not in itself discriminatory because 
you you can be a woman and have a complementarian view, right? Right. That's what I was thinking yeah. of. Yep. Uh, and so what I'm trying to capture here is sort of going beyond just having yes. that okay. view. So totally. a complementarian would hopefully say, I would never want a woman at my church to feel she was treated less as than. less than, especially yeah. if she agrees theologically. Um, right. And yet we do know that people have that experience. And that's oftentimes why women no longer will be complementarian is that their their lived experience of it get, shows bad fruit. And so they move on. Uh, so this one is another one of those. It, it's a little it's slippery in terms of when does it become abuse? When is it? frustration or or merely harm a lot of it's the eye yeah. of the beholder but it's certainly no, I, an area I, where it can become abusive well i appreciate that dan i really do um some of these are really obvious and you know them when you see them yeah um and and i would imagine you know um uh, i can imagine people thinking well crap i can't say anything you know that's not acceptable um or I'm going to be, you know, accused of abuse or whatever. And so I think the nuance you're bringing to this is super, super helpful. That it can be, it's not necessarily, but I can see, I mean, I've seen um, and, and had people who've experienced all the forms of these things mm -hmm. and see sort of the fallout. So I, I just appreciate that. And that's what I, that's why I keep going, well, hey, what about this? Yeah. And I am grateful. Um, no, you should. That and there is, there's whole room. Some well, no, because the, we do need to do lots of repenting and lamenting. Yeah, um, I don't. I just wouldn't want people to um, step out of the pastoral vocation. Um, oh yeah, for simply fear of of being called out, you know, no. as abusive. Step holding into the pastoral views. vocation to lead the charge for healthy religious communities. I mean, come on, baby. I, am, I love it. I am personally very pro church. Uh, and I think that the peer reviewed research backs that up. Um, some people who work in this world are either explicitly or implicitly, basically anti church, basically anti Christianity or anti religion. They, to some degree, they ascribe to the John Lennon imagine school of thought <laughs> that getting rid of religion will, will somehow make the world better. I think that that's in, mm. insanely naive. Um, and, and I don't think it's supported by any, really any real research, but, um, you know, people have their own stories and they have their own hurt and trauma. And, and so I, I can empathize with that. Uh, but that's not where I'm coming from. I, I, um, myself, I'm a practicing Christian plan to, we, the pandemic kind of slowed some stuff down, but plan to raise my son uh, and any future children we have in the church. And, um, yeah, so that it's not about, it's not about anti-church for me. It's about making communities even healthier and, and avoiding scandals and avoiding, um, of course the fallout of those scandals. I, I mean, have you guys been devouring the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast? Like I have been the Christianity today one. It's so good. Yeah. And I know personally, you know, dozens of people who had personal mm -hmm. fallout from that whole thing. And some of them were in therapy for years and, you know, mm. it's like, that's the cost. I mean, the cost is real of this stuff. And it's also entirely antithetical to what the witness of the church is supposed to be pointing to, you know, totally. the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, you know, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. Um, all right. Medical care. Medical this is care. An interesting one. Yeah. 
I would have thought this was just fringe groups, but the fact that this came up as one of the seven is interesting. Well, you know, it it is mostly fringe groups. Um, there are okay. there's sort of like I was actually pleasantly surprised that, for instance, um, only 13 percent of my respondents uh, reported medical care being postponed or not given at all for religious reasons, at least mm. sometimes, and only four percent reported that happening often or all the time. So that yeah. kind of thing where people don't go to the doctor, they are yeah. prayed for instead, that's pretty rare, thankfully. Um, but it does happen, it happens, uh, especially in, you know, like Jehovah's Witnesses will not do blood transfusions, uh, Christian right. scientist denominations will avoid all kinds of medical care. Um, well, we saw a lot of this with COVID. I mean, that's where, that's where all of a sudden it was like, hey, Jesus is my vaccine. Um, and I know that's not abusive per se, but, but there, there is that same impulse sitting behind it. Like somehow that's, we're just, we can't trust, um, interesting science, government, whatever. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. We could, we could spend a couple minutes on that if you want. My, my sense sure. of that is it's less about the kind of, so in these more extreme in these more extreme religious environments where they really are eschewing medical care, there is um, there's a kind of uh, really thick view of God's providence in terms mm -hmm, of like mm -hmm. physical bodies, you know, that like and the efficacy of prayer and stuff like that, like a really robust sense of that. Um, that is, I think, different than what you see with most sort of anti-vaxxers or vaccine hesitant Christians, which I think actually has more to do with just in loss of trust in institutions over time. Yeah. Uh, much of that, that is evangelicalism's own fault by prop by building and propping up um, parallel evangelical institutions to rival the mainstream ones. Uh, yeah. You see it all the way from health insurance companies to publishing houses to record companies to curriculum yeah. to, you know, everything. And so yeah. that's yeah. just a slow erosion of trust in standard institutions of which everybody is uh, able to take part. That's, that's good. That's good. So maybe it's less about the spiritual teaching of... Yeah. In, 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 uh, as compared to some of those extreme cases. That makes sense. That's that makes my sense. guess. That's good... And, I, you know, yeah. I'm operating on an assumption uh, within a, shared by a lot of psychologists that um, the reasons we state for our actions are often <laughs> not the reasons that we do them. Shocking. Shocking, right? I know. I am shocked. Now, would you, I would, again, as a neophyte uh, and totally uninitiated into um, your world, I would, I would want to, to talk about the way Christians talk about mental illness under this rubric yeah, as well. Yeah, so that's where There's, that's where it gets more um, common. So, got it. Uh, for instance, um, fifty percent of my respondents reported being deterred from seeking mental health treatment, counseling, and or medication at least mm -hmm. once or twice. And this was there was no gender difference. This is males and females. So there yeah. is a there is some pervasive sense of like you don't need counseling, you don't need therapy, uh, you certainly yeah. don't need medication. Um, I heard a story of uh, a young woman who 
was actually, this was in one of the qualitative studies that I um, based all my survey items off of. So I, I read a bunch of these interview-based studies in the, in the literature, and then I turned them into these survey items. Is what, that's how I kind of did my work. And this is from Paula Swindle's work, who's, who's on my dissertation committee, and who's been a guest on, you have permission a couple times, uh, two of mm. the spiritual abuse episodes are with her. And mm. one of her um, respondents in her study was told that uh, her depression was Satan and that basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so I hope I don't get this wrong, but taking medication was like opening the door up to the devil and the demonic. Sure. And like she was just yeah. a depressed teenager who needed some help, you know, yeah. that's abusive. Yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. bad. Um, yeah. There are, of course, more implicit and and less sort of violent versions of this that are just like, we'll just oh, downplay totally. the value of therapy. We'll downplay the value of of, you know, marriage counseling. And you, you just go talk to your pastor. You know, you don't need right. a therapist. Yeah. Um, so there again, there's shades. You're qualified it's, for everything. It's a continuum. Totally. Yeah, he's, yes, I you're saw, right, qualified for everything. I saw a uh, a very a well-known reformed pastor tweeting out, worry is a mild form of atheism. Oh my gosh. And it was just one of those like, uh, as they say in the South, bless his heart. Because um, <laughs> that is not... <laughs> but but that, that speaks to that sort of low-grade... Um, shaming of, hey, I'm in a situation that I cannot handle. I can't, I can't rein my worry in with Bible verses right now. Right, like it's out of it's out of control. So, so, um, and again, man, it speaks to this centering of the pastor as the source uh, for knowledge and uh, it, yeah. It's, I think it's there's tough, a relationship man. there. If you think that. Um, it goes both ways. Like the, the causality can go either way, right? On the one hand, you've got pastors are are more valuable than doctors or therapists. And right, on the other right. hand, you have like what the pastor, this is because the pastor has access to spiritual power, which is stronger than any earthly power that maybe a doctor or a therapist might have, right? Or something like that, yeah. a science. And we mentioned institutions, you know, Lack of trust in the scientific community has continued to increase in evangelical circles over the decades uh, as mm -hmm. there's more and more perceived antipathy between evolution and other kinds of science and like uh, more more literal textual approaches to the Earth's history, et cetera, et cetera. And so you there is a there's an interesting kind of, yeah, push and pull or rather, I guess, just a, a relationship between those two things that you're picking up yeah. on. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, moving to the next section, um, the, the, the self-protective nature of the institutions. Yeah. yeah so this um, factor I call abusers over abused. And it's basically it's a constellation of of issues that just take the they take the power position, uh, the word, the welfare of the abusers more seriously than that of those who are alleging abuse, the victims. And um, this can manifest in a few different ways. One of them is like being pressured to forgive an abuser while the abuse is ongoing. So the idea of forgiveness can really be twisted here. 
Um, I would I would argue that biblical forgiveness requires actual repentance first. But if abuse is ongoing, then that's obviously not happened. Uh, there's been no space. There's been no proof that uh, this is ending. So that would be, in my in my view, a, a a really unhelpful and and damaging use of forgiveness. Um, seeing leadership or a group itself protecting or even elevating abusive individuals or or people who have had credible abuse allegations, right? Maybe because they are good at fundraising or they. They pack the they pack the auditorium. Um, also, here is the experience of um, my church community abandoning me in a difficult time, and I think that that's maybe a little more subtle, but it really does relate to this idea of well, I was going through something rough, and uh, my church was not there for me. Um, that could be for different reasons, but I think in mm-hmm. some cases it certainly could be because whatever I was going through that was difficult was in some way against the program of the church. Like uh, Driscoll in the, in the podcast, he's quoted as saying like, the bus is gonna keep moving. You can either get on the bus yeah. or you can get off the bus. But <laughs> when someone points out- I think he says you can get on the bus or get run over Or get by run the over bus. by the bus, which is a very <laughs> apt metaphor. So right. yeah. if the bus- Straight from the lips of Jesus. Exactly, right. <laughs> If the bus is running over people, well, actually, it might be good to sort of pump the brakes on the bus, right? And right. so it, it, that's the relationship there. And then also there's, there's victim blaming. So being, being blamed for the harm that I suffered rather than blaming those who actually harmed me. So that's, that's that constellation of abusers over abused. And that, and that sort of results in the next section, which is internal distress. Yeah. Right, so you package all that together, and how do how do people come away from church? Yeah, so the best way to think about this is those first five, um, those first five areas are external. So these are things that mm-hmm. we experience; mm-hmm. they basically happen to us. And then the last two, internal distress and a harmful God image, are internal. So um, the the first five are potentially spiritually abusive events. And then the last two are what results from those experiences. These are the, so what happens to a person. Mm-hmm. So internal distress is like feeling isolated, feeling a lack of self-worth, uh, feeling mm-hmm. sadness over the loss of your faith community, feeling yeah. a lack of spiritual direction or purpose, having trouble navigating life outside your church, avoiding religious settings, um, to avoid distressing feelings yeah. or panic attacks, yep. stuff like that. Yep, yep, yep. No, totally. This is what and we I, would call I, trauma, basically. The, the the word for, you know, a lot of this is trauma and the after effects of, of trauma. Right. So I can't even be associated with X, Y, or Z because of what it does yeah. internally. Yeah, when I Got think it. of it, when I think of this, I, I have a panic attack. And this is actually then, really... This is the most pernicious thing about spiritual abuse in my mind is that what? it's like going to the hospital um, and, mm. and mm. you get your arm broken at the hospital and they don't put it in mm. a cast. And then for the rest of your life, you're like, I'm not going to go to a hospital to get better. That's where right. my arm got broken. They broke it. So yeah. the hospital, so, and the, the reason I use that metaphor, which is my buddy Evan Rosa's metaphor, um, is that. 
I know Evan Rosa. Yeah. Oh, you know Evan? From Biola. Yeah, from Biola. Yes. Yeah. Now at Yale. So he's uh, that's his metaphor. When he interviewed me, he brought nice. that in, and I've been using it ever since. Um, oh, dude, totally. But, but like, one thing we know from the rigorous peer-reviewed literature is that religious communities and, and spirituality are both um, associated with a better outcomes of healing from trauma. Generally mm. speaking, from war trauma, mm. from sexual abuse, from mm. any kind of trauma, child abuse. And so we're cutting off potentially uh, possibly the right. main source of healing that a religious person would use right. were they to be abused. Oh, so, so true. it's a so it's a double whammy um, because, yeah, yeah they're now yeah. going to have a harder time accessing their faith community, their relation, their relationship with God to heal from the abuse we inflicted on them. Well, and it's a triple whammy because the last thing you identify is that then that gets translated to God and what God's like. Right. And so this is this final one, harmful God image is one of the most interesting to me because this is where um, things really get twisted. Uh, Paula Swindle, who I mentioned, her dissertation is called a twisting of the sacred. That's the, the kind of metaphor she uses. Ooh. And once we get to these items, I feel betrayed by God. I feel as if God harmed me directly and I distrust God. When we've gotten to that point, now we have totally flipped the script because in almost every form of Christian theology and spirituality, God is never the villain. God right. might allow something to happen, right? That's that's in a lot of Christian theologies, like God allowed that to happen. There will be some lesson from it. God's ways are not our ways. Um, totally. You know, we, we have ways of sort of not yeah. pinning it on God, but to That's say, right. no, God betrayed me. Like in most Christian right. theology, God is incapable of betrayal. God can't betray. Right. We can betray right. God. Maybe we can betray each other. A pastor can betray me, but God can't betray me. And yet we know that this is an experience people have. It shows up in the literature. Uh, it shows up in carefully done interviews. And I've had people email me and message me since I've been talking about this. This is my experience. Mm -hmm. I, I have felt it. Yeah. I felt like I was directly harmed by God. And uh, yeah. that is yeah. the ultimate, I think, in some sense, it's the ultimate sign of the type of thing that can, it's like the worst type of thing that can go wrong in a certain sense for people. Yeah, yeah that exactly. That's the triple whammy, right? Um, I'm cut off from the place of healing. I'm wounded by the place I went to for healing. And now the God to whom I look for or look to as a source of healing is now, you know, assumed uh, the villain role in the story. Um, you might think of it so like uh, the first thing is the abuse. And then I was abused by my religious community. So uh, religiosity mm -hmm. is no longer available to me to heal from trauma. I might still have spirituality. God harmed me. Now I don't even have spirituality. So right. religion and spirituality right. are right. distinct right. and can be accessed differently by different people. But if you get both the if you get both the anxiety in your community and the harmful God image, now you've lost access to both religion and spirituality uh, yeah. for healing. Okay. Um, no, that totally makes sense. 
let me shift a little bit. And as we sort of wrap up here in a second, let's talk about how we would address different audiences kind of listening to this. Mm -hmm. So if you were um, a pastor um, hearing all of this, and I love where you started. Hey, you should be running to the church um, uh, to help make this a healthy community. Let's say you're in a community. Um, what what are a couple of, of pieces of advice maybe you'd give those of us trying to work this out in the midst of communities? Let me just pull something up here real quick. Um, yeah, for sure. So I'm going to pull from some work now by Dr. Lisa Oakley. She's one of these... A uh, few peer-reviewed researchers on this topic, and she and her um, her colleague have begun shifting their focus away from the abuse and toward sort of like healthy, resilient spiritual communities that exemplify the opposite of abuse. Yeah, and Good. so specifically for Good. pastors, she has um, three questions that leaders can ask themselves. Perfect. So this is this is exactly what you wanted. And she knows more than me. Yep, so yep. the first one is, would I want to be led by me? <laughs> and let me, let me just say, this one resonates with me because I, one thing I found out about myself in the, in the 10 years since the band stopped touring, my old band, Sherwood, I thought, you know, I, I co-led a band. I would be a good employer. I've tried to have employees a couple times. And I am a shitty employer, man. I am so bad at it. And like, I would actually not want to be employed by me. Now, I think that yeah. my editor, my current editor, Josh, and I have a good thing going. I've learned a few things. I hope that he likes being employed by me. Uh, but like, that's a really good question. And we may not think to ask it, especially those of yeah. us like myself who are a little bit narcissistic, who have been told by people that we're smart, have a good vision, right. are good communicators. Right. All that's different than being led by someone. That's not the yeah. same thing. Maybe that's a part of it is casting a vision, communication, but there's more to it than that, right? That's so good. Tim, I, you will answer this question later. <laughs> off, off air. <laughs> off air, yeah. Off air. Uh, mi minimize, yeah, minimize the damage. The second, I'll take an, an anonymous poll. <laughs> yeah, of one. Of one, anonymous pool of one. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. The second question is, after people have had a conversation with me, do they leave feeling valued and respected? Mm. And what's interesting here is that what they've found in their research thus far is that uh, healthy communities are communities where average average community members feel valued and respect, uh, are valued and respected, and they know it. That's a key thing. So this is where if you are a leader, you can get into the kind of thinking of, well, they might not like what I just said to them, but I gave them God's truth and that's my job. And they might not feel valued or respected, but hey, I'm a prophet. I say the truth. And if they don't listen, <laughs> I wipe the dust off my sandals. Well, right. okay. First of all, you got a lot of confidence in your own ability at that moment. And I'm basically speaking to myself here. Uh, you know, like, how do you know that that's true? Are there, are there right. smart people who love God who would disagree with you? And have mm. you really considered their points? You know, so there's, yeah. but a good rule of thumb is if they feel valued and respected, then they are valued and respected. And it is kind of mm. our job as leaders to communicate that to people. Yeah, yeah. Totally, that's look at excellent. that with like parents and children. 
Yes, yeah. I love my child. Does your child in any way possibly know that they are loved and cherished? Yeah, That's and if they with don't, the, with the <laughs> yeah, the Mars Hill stuff is such a that podcast going through that you can see so much of what you're talking about in there. And when they talk about how they tried to come around him with, like, hey, you should have these wise people come around you and kind of speak into you, and, this, and his just refusal, or almost like he, he was. Uh, just like you know, affected by the even the, and then turn that against somebody else. It's really wild to look at because that's the thing that you get. It's like if if you're so narcissistic that you can't, that none of these things even register. It's such a weird. It's such a big thing to tackle. Like, yeah, it's just so. It's such a monster of a yeah. You know, yeah. What's the third wild. question? The third question is, uh, what is one thing I can do today to start to develop a healthy culture in the place I'm in? And actually, she gives that same question to congregants Mm. uh, because Mm. one of the things that they found um, as they've looked at these communities is like, you know, actually non-pastors can have as much or more power than staff members uh, in Mm. most churches. So you can imagine, uh, you know, the the Driscoll thing is, is... uh, unlike this because he basically built up absolute power for himself. But the church that I went to growing up, my parents were at for 35 years. It saw four pastors come and go. There were families and yeah. couples yep. that were there yep. for that whole time. Those families had more power than any one individual pastor because they yep. basically hired and fired them, right? Right. Um, And so Mm -hmm. anybody can ask this question of what's one thing I can do. And I want to just, I want to list off a couple of things that they found in these communities. So we already talked about people are respected, valued, and nurtured, and they know it. And that includes leaders, by the way. Leaders are respected, valued, and nurtured by their congregants and their fellow staff. Questions and disagreements must be allowed. Obviously, Mike, you know, I know you love that. You know, this is a part of my heart because- I'm all about the fact that good people disagree on a lot of these things. And, and, and if we yeah. ignore that, we're, we're just closing our eyes to the way the world actually is. Um, they recommend leaving some interpretation up to individuals. And this ties mm. back into that authoritarian leadership thing, right? Yeah, if, for sure. If, no, if, if you're not leaving any of that up to people, then you're just telling them what's true. And I got to tell you, man. Unfortunately, there are a hundred thousand Christian denominations and you don't know what's true. (laughs) Sorry. Um, and if you had a debate today with Pope Francis, he would probably kick your ass. So you don't know that you're right (laughs) and the Catholics are wrong, you know, for instance. Wow. Um, don't mess with Frank. Yeah. Don't mess with Papa Frank. Um, yeah. And then, and then her, another big one is that the, um, the process is more important than the product. And this relates to what I was saying about multiple pastors. So my parents' church, it it was my church for 20 years, um, went through a number of important processes. One was like, do we update the sanctuary? Another one was like, do we purchase this piece of land that's right next to the church for office space and parking spaces? Uh, There's all kinds of questions about they they recently yeah. went through it. Are we going to be gay affirming? And I this is right. I know this because I have friends that are on the elder board or family friends on the elder board. You're going to keep having these questions. And and one thing Lisa says is some of these questions you're literally going to decide them again in five or ten years. 
it's like the process of the decision is what people will yeah. remember, not the product. You're going to hire and fire many people over the decades. How That's do so you good. go about it? Do people feel respected, valued, and nurtured through the process? So yeah. that's really that's good. some that's basically what, what yeah. she's found. What would you and we'll close with this, buddy? Um, this is this is great uh, to people who on the other side of this are sitting with that with those feelings of trauma, who don't feel respected and cared for, who have, have given up on God, Jesus, church. What what hope uh, for healing, if any, is there? Well, there is a there are a lot of ways to heal from trauma, and there is really good evidence um, that a number of therapeutic approaches, especially, are are helpful. Mm -hmm. So there's really good evidence for EMDR, which is a kind of um, it's a kind of mm -hmm. desensitization therapy. There uh, there are a lot of trauma informed therapists who work specifically with clients who have experienced trauma. Some of these are now becoming really competent to work with spiritual trauma, religious trauma. There mm -hmm. are not uh, a ton of them and they are often full, but it yeah. there's the cavalry is on the way. There are more people being trained in that stuff. Um, you know, it's hard to know when therapy is appropriate. I can't make that decision for anybody and it does cost money. Totally. It's a privilege. Um, but that's sort of the way that I know best, that it, that is the most effective means for healing. Yeah. But also um, there are, you know, support groups uh, and, and group therapy uh, for trauma survivors. And those are often, support groups are often free. Group therapy is often a half or a third the cost of regular yeah. therapy. And cool thing about group therapy is that it has been shown to be roughly as effective as individual therapy for a half That's or good. a third the cost. I myself am going to be starting up uh, a support group in Washington for uh, victims of religious trauma. Um, but like, you know, it's still early for all that stuff and there aren't all that many of those groups, but you could do any kind of trauma. Um, if that's, yeah. if that's you, uh, I mean, look, God, God's not on the side of the abuser. I mean, if there's anything we know from the Bible, if yeah. anything in the Bible, if there's anything in the Bible that I am like very confident is true, it is that if God exists, God is not on the side of the abusers, that that is a yeah. human thing. And, uh, it's very common and it's a, it's a big problem among, amongst us humans, but that's not what God wants. Um, yeah. and if yeah. you can find a, a couple people who can just be with you and just hear you and not judge you, that's a great start. That's excellent, man. Where, where can people find you online, bud? Well, you have permission is available anywhere you get podcasts. Um, mm -hmm. if you happen to be in the Washington state area, I, I have a few client openings right now to work on this stuff with people. I'm, I'm still a student, but I'm working with a supervisor who is a trauma expert. Um, mm. So that's just for Washington. And you can reach out to me th through the podcast about that. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but I don't, I'm trying to actually not use them very much. So yeah, I don't know. Don't get your hopes up Smart. there. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, dude. Thank you so very much for your time, Dan. Great to see you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported 
by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on Instagram at voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.